for our communities and for the world you live in. Thanks for listening to Eco Radio KC. My name is Darnell. Today on Eco Radio KC, Nadia Steinzer joins host Craig Lubo to discuss The Aluminum Paradox, a book written about the environmental hazards of manufacturing aluminum. The Aluminum Paradox also provides recommendation for alternatives to the use of aluminum and alternatives for methods of aluminum production. Aluminum is a key component in solar panels, wind turbines, more efficient cars and planes, and more. Nadia is from the Environmental Integrity Project, a 501c3 nonpartisan, nonprofit watchdog organization that advocates for effective enforcement of environmental laws. The Environmental Integrity Project has three goals. One, to illustrate how the failure to enforce or implement environmental laws increase pollution and harms public health. Two, to hold federal and state agencies as well as individual corporations accountable for failing to enforce or comply with environmental laws. And number three, to help local communities obtain the protections of environmental laws. They act as a watchdog because they have to. Of note to Missouri listeners is that the magnitude Seven Metals facilities in Marston, Missouri, has had several water and air pollution violations since 2018. We are all in this together, and it will take all of us to make the world safe for human habitation for millennia to come. We at Eco Radio are glad to encourage awareness and protection of our world. Our goal is to ensure our listeners are aware of how we can create a sustainable present for a sustainable future. Now our show. Okay, this is Craig Lubo, and thank you for joining us here on Eco Radio KC. Today I have Nadia Steinzer as my guest. She is a research analyst with the Environmental Integrity Project and the lead author of a report that is titled, and this is a long title, The Aluminum Paradox, Vital for Clean Energy, but also a major source of greenhouse gases, air, and water pollution. Welcome, Nadia. Thank you so much, Craig. It's great to be on, and hello to all your listeners. So first, let's start. Is there anything more that you want Tell the listeners uh, about your background. Yeah, sure. Um, Thanks for asking. I am an environmental researcher and policy analyst, which means that I investigate problems and dig into complicated information. And then we try to put it together in a way that the public can understand it, and it will help create change, um, positive change, of course. And um, the Environmental Integrity Project is a watchdog nonprofit organization that has been long advocating for effective um, compliance with our environmental laws, which are really protections for health and the environment. And it um, does so through these kinds of investigations and also really putting uh, the feet to the fire of regulators and people who can help protect communities. So we're very excited to have taken this uh, look at the aluminum industry, and I'm excited to talk about it. Okay. So tell us what are the hazards of aluminum to start with? Yeah. So, <clears throat> excuse me, just to be clear, we're, you know, aluminum is in our lives everywhere. I'm here sitting at a laptop. There's aluminum in it. We might have some beverage cans on our desk or in our hands right now. A lot of us probably drove today. Our cars have a lot of aluminum. So it's really all around us, and it is a remarkably lightweight, durable metal that can be recycled a lot. And it plays currently a big role and is poised to play an even bigger role in clean energy and transportation with electric vehicles. So 
it's a metal that we all use and that we all need and that the world wants more of. Um, but the reason we did this report and what we found was that there are a lot of ways in which aluminum is produced that are not good for the environment and not good for the climate. And we fortunately have found a lot of avenues for solving that problem or bridging that divide um, that we think the industry and regulators can take. Um, so you can just imagine how much energy, water and air pollution um, and land that it takes to go from mining a rock, which is called bauxite, where the aluminum in its mineral form is found all over the world. You have to dig out that rock, mine it, break it down over and over into many different forms, create this aluminum powder, which is then has to be heated to extremely high temperatures with a bunch of chemicals and water. And it's just a very lengthy process to get to the place where you actually have a molten metal that's called aluminum, and then it has to be formed and shipped and so on. So getting from that rock to a molten metal is a really complex process, and there are environmental impacts all along the way. In terms of producing new aluminum, is that going down as we increase recycling of old aluminum? That's a really good question. Um, currently, most of the aluminum produced in the United States is made with scrap metal and recycled metal. So it's both the recycling that we, uh, you know, as individuals uh, participate in, like with our cans or old appliances properly disposed of, um, and it's also the recovered metal from the cutting floor of aluminum smelters where the new aluminum is made or from automobile manufacturers or solar panel manufacturers that strip it out. So that, that amount of recovered and recycled metal is, as you say, increasing, and there's more and more metal that's made that way, which is a really great thing because recycling aluminum into new metal uses about 95% less um, energy and avoids a lot of the problems associated with mining and alumina refinery and refining and smelting. But we are really looking at a very big um, projection for demand going forward. So the amount of alumina of new aluminum that's being produced in the world continues to increase and is set to increase. Um, demand in the U.S. and globally is around set to be about 40% higher in the next decade than it is currently. So we're really looking at enormous opportunities to reduce the demand for primary or new aluminum by recycling and recovering more. And we're also looking at the sort of the inevitability of producing new aluminum. And, you know, one of our key recommendations is that manufacturers of different products um, and individuals with their own recycling need to do a much better job. Even if something as basic as a beverage can, only about 50% of them get recycled in the United States, um, which is really unfortunate. And so, you know, we all have a role to play, and large corporations and in the industries have a, have a role to play to do a better job in that way. Okay. And that 40% increase in demand that's predicted for the next decade, is that a variety of demand, or is that primarily the result of promoting uh, solar panels? Yeah, well, you, you're picking up on all the, the main points here, Craig. Um, <laughs> that is uh, a lot of the future demand will be in the solar power industry. Um, there's also a fair amount that would come from wind turbines. Uh, there's some metal used in there. But, uh, yeah, a lot of it would, uh, what's driving this projected demand would be for the solar industry, which is obviously a really positive uh, thing, and hopefully some of that could be satisfied with you know, a kind of a what we call a closed loop of like 
maybe stripping out more from current solar panels as they age out and using it again. Um, so that still remains to be seen how that'll play out. Um, the other thing that's driving it is a projections in the electric vehicle industry because folks may have heard it just how heavy electric vehicle batteries are and they weigh hundreds of pounds um maybe in some models even more and so in order to offset the weight of the battery automobile or electric vehicle manufacturers are looking for new ways to have a lighter body or lighter doors, lighter components. And aluminum is much, much lighter than steel. And so it's a good way to offset it. And that's also driving the demand. So between the renewable energy industry and the electric vehicle industry, that's where a lot of the projected demand is coming from. Although aluminum is lighter and has benefits in terms of the weight issue, are there other metals that are better in terms of mining issues and creating less um, pollution? That is a really good question. It's not actually something I've taken a really close look at. I do know that there's a lot of work going on right now to look for better ways to less polluting ways to produce steel. And I think a big answer for the production for all metals is, as we've been discussing, is trying to recover more and find new ways to alloy different metals like aluminum with some zinc uh, or, or reused copper to create new metals that can be made from a variety of, of recycled and recovered metal. Um, the other really big thing that I think the entire metal industry could do, and this includes aluminum, is and that's where the title of our report the paradox comes in you know we really want we need to really be moving much more quickly to a clean energy transition about 70 percent of the greenhouse gases uh, eip has calculated in the u.s from aluminum new aluminum production comes from the electricity used at aluminum smelters so if we could shift um those sources more for example if missouri which has a smelter um could really start moving more and more to renewable energy that would offset a lot of the impacts and i think those same questions are being asked and investigated uh, for steel and other alloys and other metals you mentioned the use in automobiles and including the batteries in the ev cars mm -hmm. Let me ask you this, though, about the quality of the metal. Back in the 70s, I'm old enough to remember this. <laughs> but I, do, I do a little bit, too, believe it or not. Chevrolet produced a vehicle that was made with aluminum blocks. The problem with the aluminum block engines at that time was that they became warped after not a very large number of miles from the heat because aluminum didn't do very well at that time with the heat from the engine. And so the, the typical Chevrolet, it was their Vega, mm -hmm. typically lasted forty to 50,000 miles, whereas other cars with the traditional blocks were lasting, you know, eighty to hundred thousand miles. Is that still an issue? That's a really good question. Um, it would be interesting to ask uh, automotive expert. My understanding is that that's not as big of an issue. Um, but I've have seen some articles about, you know, sort of the battle of the metals within. Uh, the aluminum within the automotive industry, and that would be steel versus aluminum, and a lot of sort of back and forth about, you know, which metal you actually need less of, because while steel is much heavier, maybe it's stronger, and maybe you need a lot of sort of layers of aluminum to make up for that, and then it wouldn't be as lightweight. But I think those are you know, I think the automotive industry is trying to figure out that out. There is already, as we point out in the report, 
a pretty dramatic increase in the use of um, aluminum in cars. And so just the fact that the numbers are trending up um, indicates that they've resolved some of those problems that you're talking about. And my first vehicle, I'm proud to say, was the Chevy Geo Metro. Remember those? I did. Um, they got over 50 miles to the gallon, um, even on an internal combustion engine. So, you know, they lasted a long time. So I think I think it's getting better. Um, the real the discussion now, I think, is about the size of the vehicles and the larger the electric vehicle is, the heavier the battery has to be and then the more aluminum and other metals and components you need. So, you know, the Chevy Geo Metro was pretty small. I think the Vega was pretty small, but I've seen one figure that the average light truck today um, contains a third more aluminum than a passenger vehicle. And when it comes to EVs, uh, that that um, difference is even stronger. Um, so, like an average electric vehicle, you know, that can have between six and nine hundred pounds of aluminum currently, um, but the average regular car is about half of that. So, we want electric vehicles, but. When it comes to EVs, the amount of aluminum used really depends a lot on the size because the bigger the car, the bigger the battery has to be. We mentioned some of the environmental impacts of mining the bauxite. Am I saying that Mm -hmm. right? Um, Yeah. What are some of the health hazards? Associated with bauxite? Right. Yeah, well, bauxite is mined all over the world. The world's leading producer right now is Australia, but uh, Guinea and West Africa is is coming up uh, as a major producer. And the U.S. gets um, over 60% of its bauxite from Jamaica. And we have one remaining refinery that can turn um, the bauxite into this powder that is the step before the aluminum smelting. And there, that's located in Louisiana, and there's pretty much a close relationship between a mine in Jamaica and the refinery in Louisiana. And at the site of the bauxite mines, the communities there are, there. they have two major complaints and two major health impact issues. One is just this constant dust that's created from the mining and there's a lot of iron in the in the rock too along with aluminum and other uh, metals and so the it's very red rich thick dust and it coats farmland it destroys crops causes tremendous respiratory problems and just essentially you know changes the landscape and changes the health conditions for these communities um And then the other big problem are the discharges from the mines into waterways. So there are some communities in Jamaica um, and in other countries that are really starting to launch lawsuits and to complain to their governments um, because they now have polluted water, which obviously has a lot of health impacts. So between the dust and the contamination of the soil and water, it's a real problem at the site of these bauxite mines. And a lot of bauxite mining occurs in tropical and subtropical regions. So, for example, in uh, the part of Australia where there's a lot of bauxite mining, it's also real an area that's very rich in bird life and wildlife. And there are some groups there that are documenting the decrease of um, wildlife and birds um, as a result of this mining because so much forest is cut down to make way for the mine. All right. Thank you for being with us. This is Craig Lubo. And for those just joining us, this is Eco Radio KC. My guest tonight that we're talking with is Nadia Steinzer. She is a policy analyst with the Environmental Integrity Project. 
and they wrote a report that she's talking about called The Aluminum Paradox. There's a longer title, but I won't go into all that. And it's about the environmental and health hazards of aluminum production. Stay with us, and we're going to go to our first break. Hello, this is Joseph Jackson. Join me on Caltown Conversations, where we will discuss matters that impact your life as a resident of the Kansas City metropolitan area. Every Thursday morning at 9 a.m., right after Democracy Now! KKFI values the opinions of our community, and we want you to be heard. Let us know what you think about our programs by going online to kkfi.org slash survey. Tell me about the extent of the deforestation problem, then. Um, and is it, are we cutting down forests more because of limnum, or is it about on and par with cutting it down for other purposes? Um, well, I can't speak to every other purpose. Um, I did see one study, <clears throat> excuse me, where there's about an estimated 20 acres of land is cleared for every million tons of bauxite. Um, which is a larger proportion than, say, mining for copper or iron. It's a larger proportion, but, you know, at current levels of bauxite production, that means that a land area globally around half the size of Manhattan is destroyed every year. So it's it's a significant amount of land. And I think the real question that the industry and all of us as consumers need to ask now is if, we're going to be projecting forward a lot of aluminum demand, and it's set to increase, you know, around 40% in the next decade. If that's going to come true, are there ways to do this mining with less damage to communities and with less deforestation? And that's something that I think would be worth looking into and that we'd like to hear the mining industry itself put forward um, some solutions for doing this in a less impactful way and a less destructive way you know for example there's a bauxite mine in Guinea that's that's being um, planned right now and it would be in the middle of a national park and maybe there should just be some areas that might be off limit or perhaps the industry itself could be challenged to come up with some solutions you mentioned that the refinery in Louisiana, Mm -hmm. if I understood you right, that is the only refinery in the United States. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, It's in Gramercy, Louisiana, southern Louisiana, and there used to be a couple of other um, alumina refineries, and these are refineries that take the crushed bauxite ore and turn it into alumina powder which is the main feedstock um, for creating aluminum. And it's called the Atlantic Alumina Refinery. It gets its bauxite directly from a mine in northern Jamaica. And it has caused problems, as did the other um, remaining, you know, the other alumina refineries that used to exist in Louisiana and Texas as well. This Atlantic Alumina Refinery is really causing tremendous problems um, for the community of Gramercy. There's a lot of industry in that area. It's called Cancer Alley because there's so much petrochemical facilities and other industry, and Atlantic Alumina is part of that. Um, It creates a lot of dust and and also this uh, waste product that's called red mud. And which is stored around the world in big part, uh, piles and, and impoundments wherever there's an alumina refinery. Um, there is some talk of trying to extract rare earths and other minerals that could be used in electronics and, and batteries um, going forward from this red mud waste because there's so much, there's so much of it in there. Um, but currently it's just, sitting around, uh, you know, billions of tons of it all over the planet. And that's a big problem at this Atlantic Alumina refinery as well. Um, And if uh, the impoundments were to break, uh, that would be a real problem for the waterways and for the communities. And currently the communities in Gramercy are dealing with um, water pollution. There's mercury discharges into the 
that's affecting the water, their water quality um, of the nearby waterways. And then there's also a lot of dust that's created. So those, that community as well in Gramercy is dealing with, um, you know, dust and mud just covering their cars and their yards and all the associated health impacts. And is the primary problem that they are still in need of new technology to help reduce the impacts? Or is the problem just lack of government regulations and greedy corporations that don't really <laughs> care? I I think it's a mix of things. One of our key recommendations is that um, these smelters and also the aluminum refinery um, be upgraded and new technologies be adopted. There are probably other options. We know there certainly are for smelters and also for the plants where petroleum coke is refined, which is another major ingredient that we talk about in the report. It's necessary for aluminum production. Um, so it's this petroleum coke is this really heavy rock-like substance that's almost 100% carbon. And the plants where those are created and the smelters and the refinery, they're all incredibly old and they lack updated um, technologies. For example, at both these uh, Hecoke refining um, plants and at aluminum smelters, they create a lot of sulfur dioxide, which is a serious pollutant and causes a lot of respiratory and cardiovascular problems. And the industries, the companies in that case, could install uh, a pollution control measure that's called a scrubber that would really capture. It's a scrubber because it literally scrubs the pollutant, the sulfur dioxide out of the air and holds it. Um, and they are just refused to. There are a few uh, plants in the U.S. that have them, but for the most part, the companies have just chosen not to install them, we assume, because of cost. But at some point, you know, these facilities that are decades old, we found a lot of um, indication of violations. There's a smelter in Indiana that has polluted, violated its water limits over 100 times in five years. Um, the smelter in Missouri is not in compliance with sulfur dioxide limits. There's a lot of room for improvement that the companies just really need to upgrade and change, you know, improve how they control the pollution and reduce the impact on the communities and the environment. And then we need much stronger regulation, as you indicate, um, the rules that govern this industry, the new aluminum industry. In some cases, the water and um, air limits haven't been examined, you know, and potentially updated in decades. Um, we are calling on the Environmental Protection Agency to take a hard look at those rules and determine whether they need to be updated given new technologies that exist. You used the word smelter a few times. What is a smelter, and is that the same as a refinery? Um, really good distinction. Thanks for catching me on that. Um, not a, Well, not exactly. The smelter is where the aluminum itself is created. So it's done in these, they call them pots, but they're really just these gigantic um, holding tanks and where the alumina powder that's created at the refinery that we were just talking about is mixed with a whole variety of chemicals and minerals and heated at a very large temperature. And an electric current, which is why these, these plants, these smelters, use a lot of electricity, an electric current runs through it and it creates miraculously this molten metal. And... So those smelters are where the actual um, metal is produced. And there are six of them left in the United States that are operating. Um, the U.S. used to be a real aluminum production powerhouse. In the, as recently as the year 2000, there were over 20 of these um, smelters. But they are now, there are now six in five different states. Um, and those are, are smelters. 
Those are smelters for aluminum specifically. Yes, for producing new, brand new aluminum. When they produce recycled, when they use aluminum recycled, Mm -hmm. do they still use smelters and refineries for producing that, or is that a different process? That's a different process, and there are hundreds of of plants around the country, um, including in the Midwest and all over, um, that take recovered metal and recycled metal and turn it into new products. Um, so those are not smelters there. It's a different process. As I mentioned earlier, it uses um, only a tiny fraction of the electricity and water and other um, inputs that creating new aluminum does. So it's not without impacts and does create some waste, um, but it's much less polluting than brand new aluminum. In the report, I believe you, and you mentioned that there's six um, smelters. What are some of the violations of the pollution limits at each of those? Um, Yeah, so the biggest um, source of water pollution violations is the smelter in Newburgh, Indiana. It's an Alcoa work plant. And our review of pollution records found that in the last five years, um, Alcoa has committed over 100 violations of water pollution standards um, in the Ohio River, primarily. Um, and a lot of those were for mercury, but they were also for other other substances. Um, we're seeing air and water pollution violations at pretty much every one of those smelters. Um, there are three of the six smelters, so half of the half of the smelters in the U.S. that are currently exceeding. Uh, pollution limits for sulfur dioxide, which causes a lot of health problems for people in the surrounding communities and is also really bad for um, vegetation. It's, it helps um, create acid rain, and it's also really helps generate um, particulate matter. So sulfur dioxide is a serious problem, and, and three of those smelters, um, one in Kentucky, one in New York, and then the one in Missouri, in Marston, Missouri, um, are the three that are violating federal standards for sulfur dioxide currently. And the issue with sulfur dioxide, if I'm not mistaken, was one of the key problems with uh, sulfur that was produced by the oil refineries back in the old days before they start regulating those more. Is that correct? Yeah, and also from power plants. Uh, sulfur dioxide is a big issue with power plants. And so, as I mentioned earlier, um, there are these um, scrubbers that are specific for removing sulfur dioxide from the air. Um, and it's funny name, scrubbers, but that's kind of what they do. And they are, you know, in some industries, as you mentioned, they become kind of standard in ways to reduce the pollution, to capture the pollution, keep it out of the air. And unfortunately, um, none of the none of the smelters, none of these aluminum production plants have those scrubbers. They have scrubbers for other pollutants like particulate matter, for example, but they don't have scrubbers that are specific to sulfur dioxide. And that's one of our key recommendations. We think the industry needs to start adopting them. And then these refineries where the petroleum coke is is um, refined so that it is such a concentrated carbon and it's used in part of the aluminum production process, um, those also need to have scrubbers because they are big sources of SO2 as well or sulfur dioxide as well. One of the pollutants that I saw in the information that you sent was mercury contamination. Mm-hmm. How big of a problem is that with the new aluminum versus the recycled aluminum? Yeah, it is a 
significant problem, um, and we're also seeing mercury releases from the Illumina plant in um, in Louisiana. We talked about so that's a big problem for the communities down there. It's it's a big issue coming from the smelters, so for creating the brand new aluminum, um, and it's because of the heavy metals that's within the bauxite that's being processed and that gets um, released. And we think in the case of the alcohol work plant in Indiana, a lot of that mercury is probably associated with the power plant that's adjacent to it. So when Alcoa built the smelter to produce aluminum um, back in the late 50s, early 60s, it also built its very own power plant, which is kind of an illustration of just how much energy these facilities need that a designated power plant was built um, to supply the smelter. And today, most of the energy produced at that power plant um, is used to support the, sh- the smelter. And so there's a lot of mercury that comes out of power plants and that use coal. And so we think that that's why the Alcoa work plan has a particular issue with mercury. But we also, again, are seeing it in the alumina refinery and in other um, smelters as well. You said we've got one refinery in the United States and six smelters. Mm-hmm. What about how many refineries and smelters exist in other countries that are producing aluminum too? You know, I don't have a specific count, but I will say that they're increasing and that alumina refining is happening in many countries where there is um, aluminum production going on and bauxite mining going on. Um, and currently the world leaders in aluminum production include countries in the Middle East, uh, China and Russia and India. Um, the U.S. used to be the top producer of brand new aluminum and it's currently ranked ninth in the world. Um, so you can get a sense of just how many are in these other countries that that are accounting for. Thank you for staying with us. This is oh, thank you for staying with us. This is Eco Radio KC. This is Craig Lubo. We're talking to Nadia Steinzer about the aluminum par- paradox. And now our second break. Hi, I'm Janine Jackson, host of Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. Counterspin couldn't exist without stations like KKFI that put community first. We're proud to air every Tuesday evening at 6.30 p.m. And if you miss it, you can find it at kkfi.org. That's Counterspin every Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. right here on KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. We have some great overnight shows at KKFI. Did you ever wonder what plays on those shows? You can listen back on the KKFI archive. Type in archive.kkfi.org into your web browser and hear anything from the past two weeks. Here's a calendar for the week of November 13th. The Mid-America Regional Council and Climate Action KC are looking for new members to join the 2024-26 cohort of the Climate and Environmental Council in the Greater Kansas City Region. Application forms are due on Sunday, November 26th. Candidates from diverse backgrounds are encouraged to apply. For more information, please contact Karen Clausen at kclausen at mark.org or 816-701-8255. The U.S. Department of Energy, through the Office of State and Community Energy Programs, announces that the Mid-America Regional Council was selected as a recipient of a Renew America's Nonprofit Grant to implement energy-efficient building upgrades for nonprofit organizations in the Kansas City region. Energy-efficient upgrade projects in the region could include LED lighting, HVAC replacement, and HVAC controls. Contact mark.org. Share the sun, low-income solar panel opportunity. 
Share the Sun is a free solar energy program that helps low-income KCMO residents reduce their energy bills. Eligible homeowners can receive a 10-panel, 4-kilowatt solar energy system with a 25-year warranty at no cost. To qualify, a person must own and occupy their home, have a roof 10 years old or less, live in Kansas City, Missouri, and make equal to or less than 60% of the area medium income. To sign up, email solar at jerusalemfarm.org. The program will continue through the end of the 2023 calendar year. Bridging the Gap has tree planting opportunities in November. Help us grow the Metro's tree canopy all month long. Register at bridgingthegap.org. Every Monday in November, 9.30 to 11 a.m. at 57th Street in the Paseo, Make a Difference Mondays, led by the KC Park to pick up trash. Registration is required. Reporters have spent a year studying the consequences of both the unchecked pile of trash in some parts of Kansas City and the near-capacity situation at area landfills, not to mention litter on the roadways. To see the documentary, Chronicle, Dirty Kansas City, Download the very local KMBC app. Mark is building community coalitions. Please join online or at Mark's offices for November coalition meetings. Tuesday, November 14th, 1.30 to 3 is transportation alternatives and access. Wednesday, November 15th, 3 to 4.30, food and agricultural systems innovation. Register at mark.org. Tuesday, November 14th, 7 p.m., in person at Colonial Church, 7039 Mission Road, Prairie Village, Kansas. And on Zoom is the Kansas Group of the Kansas Chapter of the Sierra Club meeting, Justice 40 in Kansas. Speaker is Monica Espinoza, EPA Region 7 Environmental Justice Program Coordinator. RSVP before 5 p.m. on the event day to receive the Zoom link at act.sierraclub.org. Wednesday, November 15th, National Recycling Day. The day raises awareness about recycling and the purchasing of recycled products. Wednesday, November 15th at 6.30 p.m., Building Neighborhood Power, Hawthorne Coal Plant Has to Go, is a meeting organized by the Missouri Group of the Missouri Chapter of the Sierra Club at 600 Wilson Avenue, Kansas City, Missouri. Thursday, November 16th, Native Plants at Noon is a webinar. You can join host Cindy Ross for a virtual hike through the lowest prairies in northwest Missouri and take a closer look at Missouri's flora and fauna. To learn more and register for the program, visit deeproots.org. Sunday, November 19th, 9 to 10.30 a.m., clean up at Camp Lake of the Woods. Oak Wood Drive and Oldham Road, Kansas City, Missouri. This effort is led by Casey Parks. Registration is required. Sunday, November 19th, 9.30 a.m., trail work at Indian Mound, Gladstone Boulevard and Belmont Boulevard, Kansas City, Missouri. Meet at the Overlook. This effort is led by Casey Parks. Registration is required. My name is Liz. Stay involved and thanks for listening to Eco Radio KC. Okay, thank you for staying with us. We're going to listen to the last part of my interview now with Nadia Steinzer. She is from the Environmental Integrity Project, and we're talking about the aluminum paradox. In some cases, some of these smelters, it's not as much about the numbers of facilities, but their capacity to produce. And so some of the newer facilities that are exist in other countries have much, much bigger capacity so they would they could be really large facilities that are churning out a lot more metal than our facilities do as well. We're talking about the hazards of aluminum production, but it's used a lot in solar panels and in car batteries. So the question is, when you consider the benefits of using the alternative energies for automobiles and for home heating or electricity in homes, do those benefits outweigh the problems with aluminum or are we diluting ourselves and is are we not are we having a problem with decreasing our carbon footprint either way we go? Yeah, well, I think the situation we're in right now with the climate and the need to shift to clean energy and to alternative modes of transportation are so intense and so urgent 
that I'm not sure I would see it as just, you know, which is better, which is worse. But what we really tried to do with this report and what the Environmental Integrity Project would like to get across is that there are real solutions so that we can make aluminum much less impactful so that it's total benefit can be that much greater. I mean, again, you know, it's a really lightweight, durable metal that has a very strong role to play in the clean energy and clean transportation transition. And we absolutely want to see that happen. So we really need the industry to get better at reducing its greenhouse gas emissions and reducing its pollution and recycling more and also have stronger protections from the government on these industries. And I think if all of that is done, uh, aluminum can be much more of a winner and less of a loser um, for the communities that live near these facilities and for global climate. Um, But it's pretty inevitable that we have to make this transition. So with a lot of industries right now, not just aluminum, the question is being asked, how do we make sure that this process that we need that will help us get off of fossil fuels and help make the big transition to save the planet and to protect communities can be done in the least impactful way? And that's the question we need to ask about aluminum as well. And we have solutions at hand if the industry and governments would choose to follow them. Can you go into a little bit more detail about the solutions? And the other question I have, kind of a little bit related to that, is there's a lot of environmental funding that was created for through the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, So there is definitely funding in the Inflation Reduction Act that I think um, some of these companies are looking at, and that's because uh, it comes through the funding for manufacturing that would contribute to the clean energy and clean transportation transition, which aluminum is considered to be one of those essential metals and minerals for that transition. Um, So there is definitely funding that companies can apply for um, to retrofit their um, facilities to reduce climate emissions and to make production more efficient and less polluting. And we have heard that some of these companies are looking into leveraging that funding um, for the aluminum production plants, which would be great. And there are probably also some upcoming tax credits through the Inflation Reduction Act that could be used for some of these retrofits. So um, it is possible that we'll be seeing um, the companies applying for that. Um, And then to your earlier question, the first part of your question about solutions, um, the first thing that needs to happen is for states to start shifting um, their energy grids to clean energy. It's not going to happen overnight. But if there could be more clean energy or at least less polluting energy made available to industries like the aluminum manufacturers, um, then we would start to see a reduction in the carbon emissions that are associated with aluminum production. Um, About three-quarters of the greenhouse gases from brand new aluminum production uh, is associated with the electricity that's used. It's an incredibly electricity intensive process. So that's the number one thing that needs to start happening. There are two of the six smelters, um, including the one in Missouri that currently use coal fired power plants um, exclusively. And so those, that really needs to shift. Um, The, other solution is that these um, rules under the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act that govern um, the limits and the practices of the aluminum industry um, on pollution, you know, and reducing pollution um, haven't been updated in a very long time. In some cases, 35 years for some of the water um, rules, 25 years for some of the air-related rules and technology-related rules. And so 
um, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is actually required to take a hard look at those um, rules every several years to determine whether they need to be updated, um, and we would like them to do that. Um, there's also, as I've been mentioning, there's more modern equipment to capture sulfur dioxide pollution so it doesn't end up in the air. And the companies have the ability to install those scrubbers if they would choose to do so. And so we're really asking the operators of both the smelters where the alumina is produced and then these refineries where the petroleum coke that's used in aluminum production is produced um, to install those scrubbers. And they should probably be required to do so, but there are some instances in which operators have done so in both the U.S. and in other countries, and so we think others should follow suit. So there's a race to the top instead of a race to the bottom when it comes to sulfur dioxide. Um, And then as we've been talking about, um, really, you know, reducing and reusing aluminum would help, and I just want to stress that it's, you know, it would be great for all of us to recycle more to make sure, you know, when we're appliances are old and and the beverage cans we use and everything in our home that our electronics are recycled in a way that the aluminum is stripped out of them and that we don't end up with things in the garbage. But government and industry have a really important role to play. It's not just up to each individual. Um, the government You know, municipal governments need to make recycling easier. There's still a lot of states and local places where an individual doesn't have a chance to recycle. And then we need the automotive industry, the solar panel industry, to do a better job at designing their products and stripping out metal from their products at the end of their lives um, in a way that it could be easily converted into new products. Um, and we would like to see a bigger role for that kind of metal recovery. Um, unfortunately, currently, about half of the metal going in that's recycled is actually new scrap from the aluminum smelter. So we need to see that ratio shift. We need to see a lot more metal recovery and recycling. You mentioned um, the nickname of the city in Louisiana as um, Cancer Alley, is it as bad as what we know have been the problems with asbestos mining? Um, Well, that's the whole region in Louisiana where there's a lot of heavy industry, petrochemical refineries in particular, and then a lot of manufacturing including this alumina industry that all gather together in a region where that's called Cancer Alley because the cancer rates for that population are so much higher than for the population at large. So those communities have been hammered for decades. And I know that some of the groups down there and some of the individuals there are really speaking out. They have been for a very long time and really requesting that there not be any new industry in that area uh, because they just can't handle the health and environmental burden anymore. Um, I unfortunately can't speak to how it compares with asbestos, but it is a whole range of different um, cancers that that develop and just they have higher cancer rates than, than other people. So it's a real tragedy and in a lot of industries they're called you know, industrial sacrifice zones where there are just certain communities that bear the burden and for the rest of us who are using the products. And I, you know, I think you see that in a lot of different places. Is there any closing thoughts that you would like to share with us? Yeah, well, I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your show and talk to your listeners and the kind of in-depth conversation we've had. And I would just say that You know, aluminum is a really important metal, and it's something we all love and use. And fortunately, there are solutions. And we just really, really hope that the companies that are producing aluminum in the U.S. and worldwide would do a much better job at reducing their climate impact and their pollution burden on communities 
so that the metal can live up to its reputation um, of being clean and that we can go forward with the transition to clean energy and clean transportation. Aluminum is part of that and it can be cleaner and that transition shouldn't come at the expense of health and the environment or it would just be a contradiction. So we've laid out a lot of solutions here and we think there's a way forward. Um, If folks want to read the report, it's called the Aluminum Paradox and it's available at environmentalintegrity.org. It's all one word, environmentalintegrity.org. And the Environmental Integrity Project uh, hopes many of you will read it and find it useful. Um, for those who have just joined us, we've been talking to Nadia Steinzer. This is Craig Lubo, and you've been listening to Eco Radio. And we've been talking about the aluminum paradox. Okay, thank you, Nadia. Did you know your business or organization could be sponsoring this episode of Eco Radio KC? Learn more at kkfi.org slash marketing. Are you passionate about making a difference in your community? So are we. KKFI's Community Voices series is dedicated to featuring local individuals and organizations that are driving positive change. If you have a story to share or initiative that you want to showcase, we invite you to submit your information at kkfi.org slash community voices. Together, let's amplify your impact and inspire others to join the movement. Join us on Community Voices and to share the positive differences made in our communities. My name is Darnell. At the end of our hour, here's some environmental news for the week of November 13th. Democracy Now! reports. A federal court in Alaska has sided with the Biden administration in its approval of the Willow Project, ConocoPhillips oil and gas project in Alaska's Western Arctic Reserve. Sustainability newsletter reports. Portland has put Oregon's first electric trash truck in service. The zero emission truck can hold a charge for two days worth of residential garbage pickups, which is about 10 hours a day. The current garbage trucks, which use diesel fuel, need about 40 gallons for the same amount of work. According to the Department of Environmental Quality, the transportation sector accounts for nearly 40% of Oregon's total greenhouse gas emissions the largest single source in the state. Bass oil reserves were discovered beneath the Osage Nation Reservation more than a century ago. Since then, tribes roughly 2,300 square miles in northwestern Oklahoma have become pockmarked with abandoned oil and gas wells. Companies that drilled and operate these wells are legally obligated to close drill holes and clean up sites once they finish extraction. But when they go bankrupt or abdicate their responsibility, Tribe citizens and landowners are left to deal with the fallout. Left unplugged, these wells can emit methane, a potent greenhouse gas, as well as leak salt water, oil, and other toxic materials. There are roughly 2,300 orphan wells across the Osage Nation, a higher concentration per square mile than any state. Anthropocene Magazine reports. Putting the blame for climate mess on the corporate boardrooms ignores the role that government have played in perpetuating fossil fuels and the technological challenge in equitably transitioning to a low-carbon economy. So we're now faced with a dilemma. On one hand, people naturally gravitate towards stories with villains and heroes, and that emotional punch is clearly politically potent. On the other hand, and the multi-generational struggle against climate change, an adversarial narrative might be getting in the way of positive change. To quote Pogo, we have met the enemy and he is us. Thanks for listening to Eco Radio KC. Please tune in again next week or listen to our podcast at any time. Thank you for listening to Eco Radio KC on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio. Eco Radio is brought to you each week by a team of collaborators, including me, 
Craig Lugo, Terry Wilkie, Brent Rysdale, Bob Grove, and Dave Mitchell. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and guests and not of KKFI and or the Midcoast Media Project. You can find our calendar and a podcast of each show on Eco Radio KC's Facebook page, as well as on our show page at kkfi.org. This is Richard Mabian, and you can send inquiries and comments to our email at kkfi.org forward slash contact 